Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And while you turn there, I just want to say that one of the things that I love about this church is uh, that we don't skip over the hard parts of the Bible. If you haven't been attending EBF long, uh, we preach through books of the Bible, and we let Scripture determine what we are going to preach any given week. And the reason that I love that about our church is because the Bible doesn't shy away from the hard things. The Bible doesn't look at the world with rose-colored glasses. The Bible has a realistic view on the fallen nature of our world and how believers should live in it. And this morning, we're going to come across one of those tough passages that most pastors probably would not go out of their way to preach. You know, this summer we've been going through the book of 2 Timothy. We've been looking at Paul, the Apostle Paul's parting words to a man who is like a son to him in Timothy. And two weeks ago, we looked at this contrasting picture of two workers, an approved worker and an unapproved worker. And we saw how the approved worker rightly handles the truth. And then last week, we looked at how the approved worker also pursues holiness. This week, though, we're going to take a deeper dive into the life of the unapproved worker, into the life of the false teachers that Paul is talking about. And I want you to walk away with this main point. Approved workers avoid wolves. Approved workers avoid wolves. And there are three main questions that I want, you, that I want to answer this morning. Three main questions. The first one, what is a wolf? What is a wolf? The second one, how do you spot a wolf? How do you spot a wolf? And then finally, the third, how does the story end? How does the story end? So once again, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. Would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's word? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You may be seated. All right, so first, what is a wolf? What is a wolf? So Paul here writes this long list of traits, right? But he emphasizes one overarching characteristic, and he, and he does that by using it to end the list. So would you look at verse 5? Paul says that they are having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. A wolf has the appearance of godliness, but denies its power. The appearance of godliness, but denies its power. Now, many of you are familiar with the fairy tale, Little Red Riding Hood. You know, I won't go into all the details and and everything that leads up to the story, but the basic plot is that Little Red Riding Hood goes to visit her grandmother on a trail through the woods, right? And when she arrives... She doesn't realize that her grandmother is no longer there. She has been eaten by a wolf. And before Little Red Riding Hood got there, the wolf had clothed himself with the grandmother's clothes, dimmed the lights, and gotten into bed underneath the covers. And the disguise is convincing enough that when Little Red Riding Hood walks in, she doesn't realize that her grandmother is no longer there. It's simply a wolf in her clothing. Now, in our context, these wolves are people who have the appearance of godliness. These are people that might look like Christians or at least spiritual on the surface. They might know the right spiritual words to fit in. They might sit in church pews on Sunday mornings. They might even stand in front of congregations on Sunday mornings. They know how to look holy. And this is an important distinction to make in this passage because the passage isn't discussing people who know that they aren't Christians. People who would call themselves atheist or agnostic. On the surface, these, prob- these people probably look quote-unquote religious. But as verse 5 says, They deny its power. They are Christian in name only. They have no Holy Spirit inside of them, and their life is absent of any fruit, any growth, and any signs of true faith. If you look at verse 8, Paul says that these people are disqualified regarding the faith. They do not have true, saving faith in Jesus. They might think they do. They might claim to be going to heaven when they die. But they are disqualified regarding the faith. For many of you, what I'm I'm about to say right now, it might be very familiar. But for some of you, this might be new. But you are not saved based on how your life looks. You're not saved based on the appearance of your life. You're not saved by your church attendance. 
You're not saved by keeping to a set of rules or by saying the right words in your prayers. You're not saved because you have a godly appearance. And as someone who is very involved in the church, this is something that I need to constantly remind myself of. I'm not saved because of how often I read the Bible. Many of you know that I served in missions for a year. I'm not saved because I was a missionary. I'm not saved because I'm currently a church planting resident. None of these things add anything to my salvation. You can only be saved by acknowledging the true power of God, his power to save people from sin. God's standard for godliness is perfection. He doesn't only require the outside to be godly. He requires godliness through and through. And this is a standard that all of us do not meet because we are stained by the effects of sin. And that's why we must look to Jesus as the power of God to save sinners. Jesus was the only person to fulfill the standards of godliness through and through. And when you repent and put your faith in Jesus, you are saved because you have been given that track record. When the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sins anymore. He looks at you and he sees godliness through and through because of the power of the cross. And as we talked about last week, as approved workers, we desire to live in a way, to pursue holiness in a way that might also lead other people to repentance and faith in Jesus. And in this passage, verse 1 builds on the end of chapter 2. It kind of continues on from where we, where we left off. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Though we seek the repentance of all, not all will repent. This is the sad reality of our fallen world. Not all will be saved. And in this verse, the last days, that, that phrase is talking about the time period that started once the Holy Spirit was given to believers in Acts. Uh, it, it's talking about the present tense, both for Timothy and for us. This isn't, um, this isn't like a vague end times prophecy about what's going to come. This is talking about the present tense, what's true of our world right now. There will be times of difficulty. There will be people who claim to know God and yet refuse to repent. There will be people who are unteachable, refusing to acknowledge the truth about God, all the while sitting in church pews, some leading churches, and all maintaining some image on the outside of being religious. And Paul is writing to Timothy with a realistic warning You need to live seeking the repentance of others, yes. But you also need to beware that some won't repent. These are the wolves. People who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Now that we have defined what a wolf is, we need to answer our second question. How do you spot a wolf? How do you spot a wolf? 
And I want to go back to Little Red Riding Hood. Because though she is initially deceived when she walks into her grandmother's house, fooled by the wolf's disguise, she begins to slowly pick up on the giveaways. Oh, grandmother, what big ears you have. All the better to hear you with. That's my imitation of a wolf imitating a grandma, so I need grace. <laughs> oh, grandmother, what big eyes you have. All the better to see you with. Oh, grandmother, what big hands you have. All the better to grab you with. Oh, grandmother, what a horribly big mouth you have all the better to eat you with. And, she pounce, and he pounces on Little Red and the story goes, and I won't scare you. <laughs> Just as there were signs for Little Red Riding Hood that this was not, in fact, her grandma, there are signs for the church as we too stay alert for wolves. And before we look at Paul's wisdom in this passage, I want to show you that this is not an isolated idea in Scripture. Jesus also had something to say about wolves in the book of Matthew. I'll put the verse up on the screen. Matthew seven fifteen and 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? If you want to spot a wolf, you must look at the fruit of their life. And in our passage this morning, Paul has quite a bit to say about the fruit of these wolves. And I want to break it down into two main chunks. Two main chunks. You spot a wolf by their misdirected love and their corrupted relationships. You spot a wolf by their misdirected love and their corrupted relationships. Let's read verses 2 through 4 again. This long list. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, this is obviously a lot to take in, and we don't have time to go through every single attribute listed but I want to point out a theme that connects them all together. Their misdirected love. You may have noticed that the word lovers is used four times. These people are lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. All of this in place of being lovers of God. Now let's think about each of these. They're lovers of self. They prioritize their own self over God. They seek what is best for their own self-preservation 
what will make them look the best to others. And their decisions are made by considering themselves while never acknowledging God. They are also lovers of money. They prioritize money over God. They seek whatever will give them the most financial profit, storing up treasures on this earth, all while neglecting and scoffing at Jesus' command to sell your possessions, give to the poor, and follow him. And finally, they are lovers of pleasure. They prioritize pleasure over God. They seek whatever feels good. Sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, sitting on the couch all day, every day, watching TV or playing video games, overeating, you name it. If it gives them pleasure, they will prioritize it over God. Self, money, and pleasure. If you want to spot a wolf, look at what they love and look at what they prioritize over God. Now, of course, we are all sinful. We all fall into some of these descriptions at times. But look at the repeated pattern of someone's life and look if they are repentant. A wolf has misdirected love. And then secondly, a wolf has corrupted relationships. Corrupted relationships. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So I think that these verses probably need some clarification. This verse is not saying that all women are weak. This is talking about a specific group of women that were being taken advantage of. And it's meant to condemn the false teachers, although it also isn't an endorsement of the women's behaviors. The end of verse 6 and 7, if you look at it, uh, it's a description of the women, not the false teachers. So these are women who were overwhelmed by the weight of their past sins and were looking anywhere for relief. And this made them particularly susceptible to the influence of the false teachers, who surely were promoting teachings that exploited their guilt and their insecurities. These women were desperate to learn and desperate for a way out of their burdens, but they never arrived at a knowledge of the truth because of the manipulation of the false teachers. And that's what I want to point out about the fruit in the wolves' lives. They abused their power and manipulated others. Nearly 500 years ago, John Calvin spoke these poignant words about this passage specifically. He says, It is surprising how men who have the great sins that Paul here mentions should be able to keep up an appearance of godliness, as he says they do. But daily experience should keep us from being too surprised. For such is the amazing audacity and wickedness of hypocrites, that they are completely shameless in excusing even their grossest faults. 
having once learned to shelter themselves falsely under God's name. And then Calvin goes on to point out how the Pharisees in Jesus' time were people who enjoyed a reputation for holiness, all the while being steeped in sin. He then goes on to call out the current events of his day, the impurity of the Roman clergy, the impurities that would lead to the Reformation, or that prompted the Reformation, rather. And though this description of the wolves by Calvin was written five centuries ago, it's particularly pointed when considering our current times, where it seems that we keep hearing of evangelical leaders who have abused their power to take advantage of women and silence women, where an entire denomination has just been exposed this week for covering up the sexual abuse of over 1,000 children by men who are seen as religious. If you have a hard time believing that wolves can make their way inside of churches and have positions of influence and manipulate others to be tokens of their own pursuits, all you need to do is look at history and watch the news. These people are evil and their pursuits are deplorable. Using the words of Paul in this passage, they are arrogant, abusive, heartless, treacherous, reckless, and without self-control. But as I read this verse, I couldn't help but think of another example in Scripture that involved a woman burdened by the sins of her past and looking for answers. In John chapter 4, a man approached a Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and was in an adulterous relationship. But this man doesn't take advantage of her. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't manipulate her. Instead, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offers her true life, which can only be found in the Son of God. So how do you spot a wolf? You look at their fruit. And you look for misdirected love and corrupted relationships. So what is the point of talking about all of this? Is Paul trying to scare Timothy? Am I trying to scare this congregation? In order to answer those questions, we need to answer our third and final question this morning. How does the story end? How does the story end? Let's read verses 8 and 9. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind 
and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Though wolves may make progress, though they may deceive and manipulate some, at the end of the story, God wins. God wins. Now, if we go back to Little Red Riding Hood one last time, the wolf may have tricked the grandmother. He may have fooled Little Red Riding Hood long enough to eat her. But he surely didn't make it very far. As the huntsman is passing by, he is not fooled by the wolf's deceit. The huntsman saves Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother. He expels the wolf from her house and he makes sure that the wolf will never harm anyone again. And Paul writes these warnings with the appropriate perspective. Though the wolves might make progress, they will not get very far. They will not have ultimate victory. Uh, the reference in verse 8 to Janus and Jambres, those are traditionally the names of magicians mentioned in Exodus 7. In that story, we, don't, we won't turn there, but in that story, Moses and Aaron are before Pharaoh. They're standing before Pharaoh, and Aaron performs a miracle. He throws his staff down on the ground, and the staff becomes a serpent. However, Pharaoh summons his own magicians, the two that are named in our passage this morning, and they are able to do the same thing as Aaron. They throw their staffs down, and their staffs become serpents. On the surface, the magicians appear to have the same power as Aaron. But in that moment, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That's literally what it says. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. A wolf will never be able to last. Eventually, their folly will be made known to all. And we see some of that exposed folly in this life. We see wolves who are brought into the light. But even more so, this will happen for good at the final judgment, where the wolves will beg God, saying, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And God will simply say, I never knew you. Depart from me. God's perfect justice, God's righteous judgment, his holy wrath will win. God wins. And how then should we live? If we, if we know what a wolf is, if we know how to spot one, what should we actually do? I want you to take away two points of application this morning. And the first is a clear command in verse 5. Avoid such people. Approved workers avoid wolves. Approved workers avoid wolves. 
In this context, Paul is probably talking about excommunication. You know, this is, this is why we have a process of church discipline. It's not to scare and to punish believers. It's to avoid wolves. But still, this is, this is a hard command to hear. It's hard to think about avoiding people or cutting off relationships. And there's a certain shock value to this command even being in God's word. Aren't we as Christians, aren't we called to love our enemies? Why would God tell us to avoid people? However, I want to propose that this is actually the most loving response. And it's not only loving to help a wolf see their own folly and hope that they repent. It's also loving to your brothers and sisters in Christ to protect them from the deceit of wolves. And what does it look like to avoid them? It looks like the process involved in Matthew 18. And we don't have time again to turn there and read it, but you start by calling someone out one-on-one, and if they don't listen, they don't repent. You take one or two others with you. If they still don't listen, they still don't repent, you bring it to the church. And if they still don't listen, still don't repent, you treat them as a non-believer. And this isn't some made-up best practice. This is straight out of Scripture. This is the, what Jesus lays out in Matthew 18. Approved workers avoid wolves. And I also want to offer a final point of application that we will end on. So if I'm being honest with you, when I hear sermons like this or I read passages of Scripture like this, it's so easy for me to just hone in on my own sin and, and turn to self-condemnation. It's easy for me to just feel guilty and ashamed of how some of the characteristics listed in the passage match my life at times. But for the believer, self-condemnation does not need to be the response. If you have repented of your sins, and your faith is in Christ alone, you are called instead to abide. Approved workers abide in Christ. Approved workers abide in Christ. In the same way that you can tell a wolf by the bad fruit in their life, you can also tell a true believer by their fruit. In John 15, starting in verse 3, Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Put your faith in Christ and rest in his finished work. Because if you abide in Christ, you are already cleaned. You have no need for shame or self-condemnation or endless questioning and doubting. If you abide in Christ, he will abide in you, and you will bear much 
fruit. What the wolves fail to recognize is that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We can do absolutely nothing. We can make the outside of the glass look as bright and shiny as possible. We can try and do all of the right things, all of the religious things. But apart from Christ, it's nothing. In Christ is bountiful fruit, is unconditional love, is abundant life, is salvation freely offered by his blood. If you question, if you're even questioning right now whether you are doing enough to earn God's love, simply look to the cross and look to Jesus hanging there for you and trust that it was his life that was enough. He paid your debt. He lived the life of true godliness, godliness through and through, and he continues to bear fruit in your life. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, in I, in you. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray to you, asking for your help. God, would you help us to, to live this out? God, help us to, to understand your truth. Help us to have the discernment to avoid the people that are described in this passage. People who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. And Lord, help us to abide in Christ. Help us to abide in him alone, to look to him alone for our salvation. God, we can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this on our own. We need you, God. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.